What if we are now at the moment of a new stage in history? That's what we're trying people to, to encourage them to think about. Hello, and welcome to Exploring Digital Spheres. In today's episode, we have a great conversation between Thomas Bechle and Nick Coldry. Bechle is co-head of the Digital Society Research Program at The Hague. Coldry is professor of Media, Communications and Social Theory at the London School of Economics and Political Science. They'll be speaking about a new term that Coldry coined, namely data colonialization. What is that exactly? And how is it different to, for example, surveillance capitalism or data capitalism? Here is their conversation. Welcome to this podcast. My name is Thomas Bechler. I'm a researcher here at the Humboldt Institute, and I'm excited to be joined this morning by Professor Nick Coldry, who's Professor for Media, Communications and Social Theory at the London School of Economics. Very good morning to you. Good morning to you, Thomas. Before talking about your most recent work, which is on data colonialism, that's a term you are coining right now, uh, if, if that's a, a fair way uh, to describe it. Before we talk about that, I want to briefly go back a few years, uh, 11 years to be exact, which uh, was uh, in 2008 when I did my master's degree at Goldsmiths College and I attended one of your courses uh, back then, Professor Coldry. Um, and this was a very exciting time uh, for me. This must have been your second year at Goldsmiths, is yes, that right? Yes, the second year, and I was probably teaching the course on media rituals, which I'd previously been teaching and started at London School of Economics. That is uh, very right, and I remember this very well. You might not remember me, because I'm too probably too insignificant for that. No, but I remember your face, but it... Things get confused and, and my, over the my, years. Yeah, and my, my face has changed as well. A bit. <laughs> I knew I knew you. <laughs> For the past <laughs> uh, decade. Uh, but that's exactly right. It was media rituals. Yes. And for me, that was a very interesting uh, concept back then. And um, it was the first time, really, that I started to think about um, everyday media practices and the meaning we attribute to uh, to media, um, apart from the obvious, which is the content uh, provided by media, but the sort of the materiality of, of media and how we sort of incorporate the media into our everyday practices, into our social interactions. And, and back then it was about um, reality television. It was about uh, the first webcams being used, uh, people sort of um, self-disclosing more private aspects of, of their personal lives to a, a broader um, audience. It was talk shows. And for me, that was a very convincing and interesting uh, approach back then. And I wonder, um, would that be still a very valid concept in today's media environment? It's still valid, I think, because we still have versions of reality TV. We still have celebrity, which trades off the difference between what's in the media world and what is merely ordinary because it isn't in the media world. Um, and of course, there are all many more forms of disclosure online, which some of which maybe begin to have a ritual component. Um, what I was trying to do through that notion of ritual um, a few years ago was really to make the familiar strange, a phrase from Henri Lefebvre, which I think is very powerful, to make the familiar strange. The 
world of media is so familiar to us. We live it so intensely. It's so integral to the fabric of our lives that it's very hard to get any distance from it. So it becomes very hard to see the actual social forms that we live through the way we operate with media. That's what I was trying to do through the notion of ritual, which is just one way of looking at the highly organized type of social form. Um, so in that sense, is a little bit of a special uh, case. But there is a continuity between uh, that work that I was doing then that was trying to look at the underlying social form and work that I then went on to develop around this sort of broader social order that's developing through our lives online. That was back in the mid-2000s when social uh, media platforms were very, very new. We weren't talking about them very much in the course at that time. We knew they existed, but it wasn't clear how significant and large they were going to become. Clearly, our lives online were important, but they tended to take the form of blogs, talking into webcams, various forms, and certain very early forms of social media site, which were highly limited and curated, and it was hard to post images and videos and podcasts and so on and so forth. A very different ecology of media from the one we have now. But there is a continuity between mm -hmm. that way of thinking and what I've been interested in since, looking at the underlying social form. Mm -hmm. Because rereading the introduction to that book, Media Rituals, you published in 2003, um, I couldn't help myself but think of today's media use um, of self-tracking, the selfie culture, uh, self-surveillance, uh, the making visible of the, the self to a huge audience, um, a type of the social that has become sort of naturalized um, in, in, in that sense through social media and this constant idea that we participate, we are connected to a type of, of social on social media. And this is the social reality we live in and we live by. Uh, so rereading this, this introduction of, of, of your book, um, I thought this uh, idea of a media ritual is even more true today than it was like 15 years ago. Would that be a fair assumption? Well, it's certainly true that um, the idea of ritualization, the, the configuring of things so that under special circumstances, highly organized ones, uh, if you like, power can be exercised, as in the form when a, a, a celebrity walks down a red carpet in Hollywood. That is a highly organized form um, where power is exercised through the structure of the form. It's a very special case. It has to be prepared for in all our relations to celebrity, which is the broader domain of ritualization. So I think because we're online all the time, virtually, our relations are so many now, It may well be that those special moments of ritual are not so common always or harder to be clear when they're happening. But the idea of the ritualization, our preparation for those moments is certainly uh, very, very broad. There were, I think at that time, um, my analysis, although I tried to base it in broader social theory, was still a little media-centric, if I'm honest, although I was trying to push against a media-centric approach to studying media at the time. But even so, it was still a little media-centric. Because although I was noting um, surveillance as already a very important form of power that somehow seemed to be invading the world of ordinary television in a way that was very strange through reality television. And I was puzzled and interested by that. 
What I hadn't seen was two things. I hadn't seen yet, but it, I got to it in my next book around voice, the importance of neoliberalism as, if you like, an ideology that argues that markets are everywhere, that everything should be organized on the basis of markets. And that was lying behind the social dynamics that were pushing various forms of self-disclosure. That wasn't so clear to me in 2003 or four. I was beginning to get a sense by six or seven about that, um, but I hadn't seen the bigger picture. And then because of that, I hadn't also seen where all of this was tending in terms of the wider relations of capitalism and how that was shifting in new directions, of mm -hmm. course, involving data, mm -hmm. which very few people uh, were paying attention to at that time. And, and looking at your very impressive, uh, uh, very long list of, 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 of books you, you either authored or edited, um, I noticed, I think I noticed at least, uh, that you started off with a rather optimistic view on alternative media, for example. So kind of being that subversive power to the existing media institutions, the uh, sort of existing media uh, in environment. So as a tool of empowerment to kind of challenge the uh, socio-political uh, structure. Mm. And then it gradually becomes a bit more pessimistic. Or is that just my impression? I, I don't know whether I was optimistic initially, but what I wanted to do in the early work on alternative media was to take seriously, to take at its own terms, the important cultural and community work that was being done by people outside media institutions, trying to get access to the resources of media institutions, the resources of telling the story of their lives. And this seemed to me incredibly important politically. And so my definition of alternative media was not necessarily political alternatives, but attempts to do the media differently, be in the media differently, which very much became a principle of a lot of later media activism, of course. Um, so I was neither optimistic nor pessimistic, but I wanted to broaden our framework for understanding um, what was going on with media. It was a much bigger universe than the the medium of mainstream TV, radio, and the press. Now, of course, we all take that for granted. Mm -hmm. We know the media universe is much, much broader. <laughs> and so in a way, that's taken for granted. Um, so I'm neither optimistic nor pessimistic. Mm -hmm. But it's certainly true that new forms of power, new forms of danger have emerged on the scene since I was writing then that I certainly didn't anticipate mm -hmm. at that time. And since you're a media scholar, I think it's very interesting to know a little bit about your own rituals. So are there any rituals you would be a participant of regularly? I guess there are two things I've mentioned and uh, occasionally I write about them. One is I, I quite enjoy celebrity spotting and telling friends when I spotted someone interesting and we do that through text or WhatsApp. I enjoy that because for me, celebrities and the way they're mapped onto physical space is, is interesting. That's how I got interested in studying the initial rituals that I did. And I don't hide that. I've occasionally uh, written about going on the Sopranos tour in New York and going to the location where things are filmed. I understand the power of these rituals quite personally. Um, the other thing I will mention in terms of my daily rituals, being a news junkie, I wake up to the news by my radio alarm and I go to bed to the news, <laughs> BBC, 
uh, to keep me up to date with the latest political developments. So certainly that's that's a, a ritual in the sense of a habit in my daily life that has a sort of more greater meaning as a ritual because it, it confirms my sense of self-identity, which is probably confused and uh, deluded that I'm somehow connected and following what's going on in the world. Uh, and you just disclosed um, that you use WhatsApp. Yes, I do. Um, within you? family and friends, close friends, mm-hmm. um, because we enjoy swapping pictures and uh, it's, a, it's a joy. So I would never deny that there can be positive uses of either rituals or the platforms that I'm increasingly interested. Of course, humanity can use whatever forms it takes to do, have its ways of finding joy and also its ways of doing harm. Mm. Um, and you don't have any, have, do you have concerns about using, uh, these types of services? Especially WhatsApp, because it's a sort of, uh, uh, it's an infamous example of. Uh, well, obviously I know, and this is what we write about in the new book, that WhatsApp, although it's end-to-end encrypted, which was the initial attraction to people to start using WhatsApp rather than using Facebook, since it's been acquired by Facebook for nearly $20 billion uh, a few years ago, we know that metadata um, about who we're most connected with, when and from where is gathered by WhatsApp and passed on to Facebook for its own benefit. I, I know that. But that's something, a cost that I'm prepared to pay in that circumstance because um, of certain benefits. Mm. And that's why when we write about data colonialism, which maybe we could move on to, um, the new book, uh, which I've written with Ulysses Mejias from SUNY Oswego, we do not suggest that there's a distant world of data collection that some of us are involved in and some of us are separate from and that we write from outside that um, and in some way criticize those who are implicated in it. That's not how we write the book at all. We emphasize our complicity in the new world that is building, the new social order that's building through our complicity and our participation in platforms. If we ignore that, then we ignore the size of the complexity of the the problem that we need to understand. Um, so in the long run, maybe I will withdraw from WhatsApp. I virtually never use Facebook. I do use Twitter for professional purposes to push out my ideas, including ideas about data colonialism and any other ideas I'm working on at the time, um, and to also engage in debate with those who find the word colonialism troubling. I'm very happy to have that debate. Twitter is a useful and very focused uh, channel for that sort of discussion. But again, it is a platform, not a very successful one financially, but Mm -hmm. it is a platform. So platforms are very important in many of our lives today. And that's why it's both interesting and very important to grasp again, to go back to my beginning point, to make the familiar strange and understand more broadly the social form that is being built through our involvement with platforms. Um, looking again at the continuity of your work and, and looking now at, at the most recent, um, uh, most recent um, work on data colonialism, um, my impression was that this was a, a very dark premise um, described with a kind of um, very dark term, colonialism, uh, with a very bleak outlook. Mm. Um, and this kind of struck me because it was very political. Also, the language is very political. If, if um, I, I read one of your texts on, on data colonialism, uh, one which was already published, and um, you call for resistance 
you use the term colonialism, which is a highly political uh, term. Mm. And, and it, it struck me that it is kind of, uh, um, this is new ground for you, or would, would that be a false uh, interpretation? No, it's not false, but there is an important continuity. So I'm mentioning before, looking at social form, as we look at social form, building that into a wider picture of the social order that's made possible through our relations with media. That was very much a theme of the last book, the book with Andreas Hepp called The Mediated Construction of Reality. And if you like, from the conclusion of that book, that a new type of social order, which is very differently configured in space and time, involves a much closer embedding of our lives in media than the previous social order of mainstream media for the 60s and 70s that was still continuing in the late 90s and early 2000s when we first met. And now a very different social order is being built, which makes possible very new forms of power, very new forms of governing for the benefit of corporations and states. That's where the previous book uh, ended. And we raised at the end of that book the question, is this order good or bad? Is it, are its complexities positive or are they in very subtle, but maybe not so subtle ways, negative and troubling? So that book, if you like, ended with a question mark. This new book, which I was already thinking about as I finished the book with Ulysses, the new book uh, written uh, with Ulysses Mejias, who's a Mexican scholar based in the United States, addresses a concern that I've been having for the past two or three years already which is about the strange conflict that was emerging between our relations, our time spent on platforms, and the relations of extracting data that seem to be an inherent part of that. And the the fact that corporations, marketers, and so on, as they spoke about our relations to data, were increasingly saying both that the data was somehow naturally produced and it was just there for taking, and we benefited from that, which I didn't believe because the whole thing was precisely socially constructed, just as rituals were. Um, but also the, the sense um, that all of us benefit and that somehow uh, something like community uh, is produced through these relations to data and that there was nothing we could do about it and that even a new form of human knowledge was developed. Mm-hmm. I was very struck and made very angry by Chris Anderson's famous essay in Wired in 2008 called The End of Theory, mm-hmm. where he announced big data as a radically new form of human knowledge which would not need hypotheses or statistics mm-hmm. or anything like that. It would just gather all the data, process it a million times mm-hmm. and come up with proxies which would enable us to predict what would happen without understanding it. And this seemed to me the most violent almost crazy in its formulation initially, most violent rejection of a hermeneutic approach to understanding the social world. I wonder why call it data colonialism? Because, I mean, there have been others, uh, many scholars who wrote on these developments. I just want to name uh, Shoshana Suboff, who calls it surveillance capitalism. Yeah. You could call it data capitalism. And in a way, it's a very sp- special form of capitalism that has been developed uh, within the last one or two decades. Why call it colonialism? And I'm I'm not asking this to question um, whether it's colonialism or not, but 
because of the core message you're sending out. People have now the tendency, that was my impression, to question whether it is colonialism or not, and is it appropriate to use that term? Mm. And your key argument uh, becomes sort of invisible by constantly justifying your... your well, hopefully uh, not. Your, your I mean, there. obviously people, the book won't come out until mid-next year, and hopefully people will be able to see the argument for full. We said it out in the article that you mentioned. Um, why do we use the word term? Well, as you say, there are a lot of people who offer excellent theories uh, about how what's the current stage of capitalism is using new means, surveillance, data gathering, and so on. And we build on that work. We don't deny it in any sense. Uh, and we share a lot in common with that work. But there are there are two reasons why we think it's important to use the word colonialism. The first of all, and this goes back to many critiques of theories of capitalism, is that they've ignored the long-term historical relations between colonialism and capitalism and the historical fact that it was colonialism, the land grab of territory, resources and bodies across the world by a particular part of the world, Europe, that enabled capitalism to emerge at all in the first place that generated the extraordinary wealth that made something like capitalism even possible so we need if we're going to think about the direction of capitalism at least to take that into account that's the first point but the second point is that when we do take that longer history into account in other words not just the past 20 or 30 years of the refinement of today's capitalism but the 500 years in which cap colonialism gradually generated capitalism and then continued alongside it, because let me emphasize, we are not saying that historic colonialism has died. It continues in various neocolonial forms in terms of racism, in terms of the structure of migration, in terms of cultural dominance and so on. It continues in reduced and less powerful forms. It does continue. It hasn't died. But... We need to go back to the very beginning of colonialism and understand its historical function, which was to think and to make possible a totally new relation to the resources of the world uh, in relation to power. To believe that Europe could appropriate the resources of the power of, of the world for what became capital, forces of capital, forces of economic extraction. We're arguing that if we only see what's going on today with data as a continuation and refinement of capitalism alone, then we don't see the sheer scale of what's going on, which is literally to expand the repertoire of capitalism in a fundamental way, to move beyond the idea that human beings can be exploited through labor relations, which is, um, which is familiar territory, mm. that continues, but to also see that the other part of life which we recognize, which is not labor, which is not even shadow labor, which is just us hanging out and doing what we do when we relax, when we mm. do not work, when we perform things which are not even activities, mm. just hanging out, itself can be extractable for value. Mm. That is a huge historic step. And only the, the framework of colonialism enables us to see the scale of that step. Mm. And there's a third reason why we use uh, the word colonialism, because also it gets us to realize we may not yet understand the full shape of the capitalism that we'll be able to build on the profits of this new day to colonialism. Mm -hmm. It will take 20, 30 years to form. To name it already is premature. And so we avoid doing that in the book. We talk instead about capitalism rather mm. than a type of capitalism. Mm. But, but 
Mm. Um, but, but juxtaposing the idea of colonialism or neo-colonialism, which is still going on um, today, uh, juxtaposing this uh, and data colonialism, the term you use, uh, doesn't this sort of diminish uh, the, the consequences, well, on the other side? Uh, well, it could do uh, if people... <laughs> I'm not interested in the idea we're putting forward in the book, which is an idea for the imagination, that in order to fully grasp the nature of the changes, we do need to return and rethink the word colonialism and imagine the possibility it could take yet new forms. Mm. Just as capitalism can change, so colonialism can change. If people are not willing to make that move, then they won't be interested in the argument. But we hope they will be. Uh, and history is complicated, History is never just about one process. Historic colonialism hasn't died, and to some degree it shapes the forms of data practices. So when Facebook moves into Africa and tries to offer a stripped-down form of uh, the Internet called Facebook Free Basics to 23 African countries and is able to do so because of the power of American capital as against uh, African economies, that is a neo-colonial move. We do not deny that. We emphasize that in the book. But the broader transformations going on through data are, we argue, colonial in a different and distinctive way that we have to understand. Otherwise, we just argue that what is going on is merely a continuation of the past. What if we are now at the moment of a new stage in history? That's what we're trying people mm -hmm. to, to encourage them to think about. And there's a reason for this, that if we see our relations to data as relations that just need policy fixes, better laws, uh, smarter regulation of large corporations, all of which is important and probably positive, then we miss the scale of change going on. We argue in our book that a whole new social and economic order is being built, partly through our relations with data, what we call in the book data relations. That's the larger scale of what has to be challenged if it has the consequences for freedom and inequality that we believe it does. As a result, the, the best starting point now is not to think up smart practical measures, because they will not come close to addressing the scale of the problem. The key thing is to free up our imaginations and ask ourselves a simple question, which is, is the future of digital society that is being shaped through the forces we call data colonialism, is it the future that we want? And if not, how can we imagine a different future and then begin slowly to identify routes towards mm -hmm. that different future? Thank you very much for your time this Thank morning. Thank you, Thomas. And have a pleasure to talk about to London. It. Thank you very much, Thomas. Bye-bye. That were Thomas Bechle and Nick Coldry. If you want to learn more about their research or you want to visit one of the many events that The Hague is organizing, visit hiig.de. In the next episode, I'll have a conversation with Martin Riedel on content moderation. What does it mean if we create a very clean version of the internet? What does it mean if people don't know how to interact with each other anymore? This was Exploring Digital Spheres.